there's more to this life than I thought. And James inspires me. The things he says have encouraged me. It's like there's a walk, there's a path, and it's leading to something more real than I've ever known before, and it's exciting. I get around James and I hear things that help me in my life, my work. This work he talks about has become my work. I am excited about the possibility that other people could be affected, other people could be inspired to work on themselves, to grow, to, to realize there's more to this life. When I was a child, Charles Atlas was a household name. Do you remember Charles Atlas? And he was known as the muscle man of the era. He was the guy. You had a body like Charles Atlas. And all the comic books had these little ads about don't be a 97-pound weakling letting people kick sand in your face. Through dynamic tension, you could be a strong man like Charles Atlas and beat the crap out of all the bullies and get all the girls. And that was what people wanted back then. You know, the 40s and 50s and early 60s. That's what kids wanted. They would have these cartoons of this skinny guy at the beach and some other big muscle guy just kick sand in his face and abuse him and then take his girlfriend, his girlfriend, and go with the guy, you know, with the muscle guy. And the other guy, oh, I'm tired of this. And he'd go home and he'd get this Charles Atlas thing and he'd work out and do dynamic tension and get muscle. Then he'd go back to the beach and he'd beat the crap out of the bully. And then the girl would go, oh. And she'd go back to him, you are a real he-man. That was it. That was the big deal. Being a he-man, getting even with people who stole your girlfriend, were advertising points that were appealing to immature minds. You know, vindictive. Let's get even. Let's punch somebody out. Let's show them that we're really somebody, that we can be somebody. And now I look at that and I go, who'd want a girl like that? She's so fickle. She goes for this guy and then the, because he beats up this guy and then she goes for this guy. Forget that. But that's what the Charles Atlas advertising thing was all about. Bodies mature automatically. And a normal person, the body just matures automatically. You're born, you grow up, you grow old, and you die. That happens automatically. There's nothing you have to really do about that. You breathe automatically. You eat food because there it is. And you drink water because there it is. And all the other stuff you add to it, that's how you get dying faster. But that's still what we do. But psychologies don't mature automatically. What seemed wise to a young mind is foolishness to more mature minds. See, now I look at the thing and I go, well, that's not such a great idea. I'm working on my body so I can beat people up and get fickle girls that nobody else wants anyway, that are ridiculously stupid. So that doesn't make any sense. Young strengths become mature weaknesses. Attitudes are laid down in us early in life by imitation of our elders and dominant romance of the period. So this is what this whole Charles Atlas thing was. Dominant romance of the period was be a muscle man, kick this guy's butt, and get this fickle girl, and then you'll live happily ever after. That was, that was it. And this is what we grew up with. And this is what we grew up with in, in this country. I don't know about other countries, but they had other things. They had other muscle men. And Charles Atlas is worldwide, I'm sure. But that's how it happens. The attitudes quickly become mechanical, and they crystallize us into certain kinds of people. And then we remain almost completely blind to what kind of person those attitudes have made us. So what makes us, what has crystallized us in the kind of people that we have become are these attitudes. But the problem is, is that we are blind to these attitudes. We can't see them. Other people see them, but we don't see them. I remember when I was in high school, I got into trouble a lot. I know, that's hard to believe, isn't it? But when I was in school, I got into trouble a lot. First six or seven years of school wasn't so bad. But after I, when I was in Catholic school, after I got into public, because you didn't want to get in trouble with the nuns, because they knew how to deal with trouble. I mean, they, you want to be trouble? You have just met trouble personified. And not only that, we have a whole sisterhood. 
and we stick together. And it's like, and it's just you. So it's like, okay, well, let's forget about the trouble then, all right? What would you like, sister? So it was different. But I got into public school, and it was so free. You know, you had rights, and you could do this, and you could do that, and girls and boys interacted so much. And in Catholic school, it wasn't like that. You didn't really cross the aisle to talk to the girls. You know, the girls stayed over there, the boys stayed over here, and that was it. None of that. But by the time I hit public school, there was all this interaction with the girls. It got to be this big distraction. Learning went out the window. Sex was the new thing. You didn't really think so much about sex. It was just, it wasn't sex, sex like it is now. Now in seventh grade, they're putting condoms on pickles, you know, or whatever, cucumbers or something. Then it was like, you didn't even think like that. Condoms were a joke, you know. There was something you'd blow up like balloons. It was a joke. Nobody understood what all that was about. But now it's different. It happens slowly, this thing with the attitudes and the crystallization, and often with our enthusiastic approval. See, it's like the guys all get around, they talk about bodybuilding and getting the girl and all this stuff with the Charles Atlas thing. So we are enthusiastic about acquiring these attitudes. Well, we we look at these people and we admire them. We think, yes, that's what I want to be like. We get enthusiastic about becoming millionaires. We get enthusiastic about becoming rich, powerful people who can squash other people and be at the tops and do this and do that. We get enthusiastic about that. You get older and you're stuck with that. And then it's like, how do I get rid of it? That's if you wake up to it. If you can awaken to it. The possibility of awakening to it is not very good in this world. You have to meet some kind of work, some kind of system, some kind of esoteric idea that can start to awaken you to the fact that you're a brutal, ignorant, violent piece of work and that there's nothing to be proud of. And that is a bitter pill for self-love to swallow. So most people, unless they have magnetic center, there's no way they can receive that. There's no place for these work ideas to fall. They are all false attitudes. There is nothing in them where the work can touch and find a place to grow. That's what magnetic center is. It's a little patch of soil in an asphalt jungle. It's a little patch of soil where something can grow, where there's nothing else. And how we are when the work finds us is we're just this little patch of soil in this huge city where nothing grows, where nothing green grows. And so the work comes along and it plants these seeds and then they start to grow. And the city just wants to gobble them up. And it usually does. And that's how come so few people ever do anything with this work. But anyway, moving along, rather than getting all depressed about how awful it is, the possibility of revolution is the exciting part. The fact that you have made it this far is the exciting part. Because if you've made it this far, the plants that the work has planted in you have enough strength to be able to withstand some of the onslaughts of the world. And not only that, but their roots have gone deeply enough so that they can be nourished by the work. And even if the world slams against them, even if the city comes against these little plants in this little patch, they're growing so strong now and they are so well-rooted that it doesn't matter what the city brings against them. The work will help you. The work will nourish you. The work will keep you going if you know how to get to the nutrients, the source of the nutrients. And you're learning that. You're learning how to get your roots down into the work, get to the source of the nutrients. So whatever the city brings against you, it's like, yeah, it can be a real drag. It can stagger you, it can wilt you, it can bend you, but it will not break you, it will not ruin you, it will not kill the work in you. That's something only you can do now. Only you can kill the work. The city can't do it now. The only thing that can do it now is your self-love. That's what stands between you and success. So here we are. We've got these attitudes because we subscribe to all these things enthusiastically and worked on them. It's impossible for us to see them, and that engenders a loyalty to them and a defensiveness of them or of ourselves. Because now that we think we are these attitudes, now it's a matter of self-defense. Somebody comes along and they say something about this attitude, they're talking about me. 
They're not talking about an attitude. They're talking about me, and I must defend myself. And that's the problem that we end up being. We end up being blind to ourselves, and we strut around and call. It's spring, so we have peacocks in the neighborhood. And have you ever heard peacocks call? Oh, my goodness. And naturally, it's mating season, so they're strutting around, too. We become like peacocks. We strut and call, just like peacocks. Rather than hang our heads in shame while the world encourages our delusion with insincere praise and trinkets. And that's really what the world encourages us with. Insincere praise. People don't praise you because there's anything praiseworthy. They're praising your false personality. That's what they're praising. And so that's going right to what? It's going right to false personality. So when people praise you, trust me, blow it off. Do not accept it. Don't accept their criticism. Don't accept their praise. If you're going to accept one over the other, accept their criticism. Accept their criticism as, yes, this is something I definitely need to look for in myself. But that's not how we are as a rule. We're just the opposite. We reject their criticism and accept their praise. This is not beneficial to our psychological development. Let me just say that about that. So we become imprisoned by our acquired mechanical attitudes, and then we're only able to see one point of view. What is an acquired mechanical attitude? It is, this is right, that's wrong. This is this the way it is? Well, in our family, this is so funny. I remember the election between Richard Nixon and John Kennedy. I was a kid. I was in high school, and they had this thing, an election in school, to find out who people were going to vote for, with the, the, you know, a mock election for the whole high school. And it was so funny. We were Democrats, so we were going to vote for John Kennedy. Well, I wasn't going to vote for years. You had to be 21 to vote back then. For me, voting was years off, but we could, we could vote in this school, mock school election. I voted for John Kennedy because we were Democrats. Well, what is that? That's an acquired attitude. Where did I acquire it? I acquired it from my family, from my mother and my father. And before that, it was Adlai Stevenson. He was the greatest guy. That's the guy to vote for. But he'll never get elected because he was too good. And that bum Eisenhower, you know, that thing. And we just accepted that was right. Everything else was wrong. So do you see how you acquire attitudes? It's just like that. Your religion, same thing for everything. Everything about us was acquired just like that. What you are doesn't even exist. It has nothing to do with who you are. All this stuff that was glued onto it. You're a collage of junk that has been glued over who you really are. So if you take this nice white board or black board, I don't care. I'm not a racist. A white board or a black board or a yellow board or a green board. Take any kind of board you want. And then you start gluing stuff on it until you can't see what's underneath it. And then it becomes so thick, you'd have to scrape it off. And you wonder why it's so difficult. That's why it's so difficult. You have all this crap that the world has glued on you to scrape off in order to find the real you, in order to get to what you were created as and start to nourish that and start to develop that and start to connect with that. So we become imprisoned. The difference is that a conscious man can see things from different angles because he's freed himself from being exclusively governed by the extremes. What extremes? The pendulum. This extreme, that extreme. If you're not a Democrat, what are you? Then you're a Republican. Well, if you're not a Democrat or Republican, what are Well, then you're a political atheist or you're a Greenpeace guy or you're a whatever. They have a bunch of different ones. But the thing is, is you're either a Democrat or Republican or an independent. That's it. Democrat, Republican or independent. An independent is supposed to be someone who's going to go either way. He's going to make up his own mind. Means this is a guy who's thought enough about this to realize that he doesn't really want to subscribe to either one of those. He's not going to be allowed to be a part of any convention because he's a weirdo. 
See, the independents are the weirdos because they're the ones who are in the middle of the road here and they're not going to go, I'm not this and I'm not that. They're going to vote for the best guy. Of course, they end up not voting at all because there is no best guy in an election. They're all a bunch of dead men. You do know that, right? I don't need to be slandering politicians because they're just dead like all the rest of us. Thing is, is that you're beginning to awaken. This work is beginning to slap you awake or to stir you to something where you could actually possibly wake up. It's the possibility of your evolution, the possibility of your awakening, the possibility of your second birth. And this is what we're about. And most of the world's not interested in that. Most of the world is interested in riches and power and success in whatever worldly way it has been acquired. You take a little kid and you give him a million dollars, a little baby. What do they want with a million dollars? They don't care about a million dollars. They want some milk. That's what they want. They want to be held. They want to be warm. They want the basic things. All this other acquired stuff comes later. And we acquire it from all these other sick people around us who acquired it from sick people before them and who acquired it from sick people before them ad nauseum. So we become imprisoned. But conscious men don't rise to the top of life. The people who rise to the top of life are the dead people. See, it's the dead who float. The living can still swim. The dead float. The ones who have risen to the top of life are the dead men. The rich men are the dead men. The powerful men are the dead men. Those are the people who have risen to the top of life. Conscious men don't do that because those positions are reserved for the he-men, limited by one-sided being. How you get to be at the top is by limiting your being to one side. You have to be strong. Why is a lion the king of the jungle? Because of its strength and its quick kill. That's how you get to the top. A strong man will judge and condemn with impunity, but he won't forgive. While a conscious man wouldn't think of judging, condemning so violently, not forgiving. A strong man, bluster and rage and make a fool of himself. Of course, he doesn't look like a fool to the world because the whole world cowers. Oh, it's the strong man. Oh, he has a lot of money. He has a lot of power. You better stay on his good side or else he'll make your life miserable. A conscious man doesn't care. He doesn't care for that bluster. He knows it's all wind. He knows it has nothing to do with anything that's important. It's why Jesus could stand before Pilate. And Pilate said, don't you know that I have the power of life and death over you? And Jesus said, you don't have any power over me or anybody else. It hasn't been given to you from above. That was a conscious man who understood something that that strong man, Pilate, could never understand. What given to me from, I am the power here, not you. He had no clue. And Jesus did have a clue. And his clue was so strong that he was absolutely unmoved by all the threats of torture and death. That's a conscious man. You can see the difference, I hope. Pilate was afraid of what the people thought. Pilate was afraid of his wife's dream. Pilate was afraid of what Rome would think. Pilate was afraid that the people might riot. Pilate was afraid of everything. The strong man lives in fear. The conscious man lives in perfect peace. In the world's eyes, the conscious man is the 97-pound weakling, while the strong man is worshipped as an icon by those who also lack consciousness of themselves. When you are not conscious of your attitudes, when you don't know who you are, when you don't know what you have become, then you're the strong man. When other people then worship you, there are other people who do not know what they are themselves. This is why the first charge here is, man, know thyself. You've got to find out what you have become so that you can strip that away and know your true self, your real I. But first, you've got to see all the shellac and the varnish and the garbage that's pasted and slapped over that. And then that has to be removed. And that is a process, I can tell you, that takes a little while. And some elbow grease. Effort. The strong man doesn't realize how much he's like the people that he condemns and judges. And he doesn't forgive. Because he can't see how he does the same things himself. 
Let me give you an example. First Kings chapter 20, and I'm going to start with verse 37, and I'll read until I stop, which will probably be sometime in chapter 20. It's not that long, but it's interesting because it says exactly what I want to say. Ahab was the strong man, so that's how this story is going to go. This conscious man, a prophet of God, a conscious man, he was told, go and tell Ahab this. I'll just read you the backstory. Now, a certain man of the sons of the prophets, this is great, a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to another, by the word of the Lord, please strike me. But the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, because you have not listened to the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you have departed from me, a lion will kill you. And as soon as he had departed from him, a lion found him and killed him. Now, the ramifications of this are obvious. If you don't listen to the work, if you don't listen to the truth, then a roaming lion in life is going to find you and kill you. Something strong in life is going to capture you, kill you. It's going to kill out your connection with your essence. So that's clear, yeah? Okay, good. <laughs> I say these things like it's clear, like it should be as clear to you as it is to me, and I know that it always isn't, because then when I explain it, you go, oh, yeah, that's clear. Sure, yeah, that's, that's, yeah absolutely, that's clear. But before, if I had asked you, well, what's that mean? You go, oh, well, I think it means that lions are bad when they get out of, yeah, and you shouldn't be around lions, and God, the only place to see a lion is at the zoo. <laughs> so we all have different understandings, but anyway. <laughs> so then he found another man, and he said, please strike me. Well, this guy struck him, wounding him. So the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way and disguised himself with a bandage over his eyes. And as the king passed by, he cried to the king and said, Your servant went out into the midst of the battle, and behold, a man turned aside and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man. If for any reason he is missing, then your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. And while your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. And the king of Israel said to him, Now this is Ahab. So shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. Then he hastily took the bandage away from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him, that he was a conscious man, that he was of the prophets. Oh, gosh, now I'm in trouble. And he said to him, Thus says the Lord, because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I had devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall go for his life, and your people for his people. So the king of Israel went to his house sullen and vexed and came to Samaria. So now this is Ahab, right? He's the king. He's the strong man. Now it came about after these things that Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard which was in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And Ahab spoke to Naboth saying, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is close beside my house and I will give you a better vineyard than it in its place. If you like, I will give you the price of it in money. Naboth didn't want to do it. So Naboth wasn't given in to the strong man. So the strong man went and sulked because strong men are really weak men. So he went and sulked until Jezebel came and said, I'll get it for you. Get up, quit whining, quit sulking. I'll get you the vineyard. So she went and she paid a couple of guys to bear false witness against Naboth. So they said, yeah, we heard Naboth curse God. And so they said, what? And they took him outside and killed him. So as soon as he was dead, Ahab went, yeah, yippee. And he went and got the vineyard, took the vineyard and made it a vegetable garden. So that's the story of the strong man. He gets whatever he wants in the world. He pays this guy and he pays that guy and they lie for him and they cheat for him and they do this and they do that and he gets what he wants. So the Ahabs, the Atlases, the strong men rule the world of the walking dead, leaving pain and misery in their wake and death. And that's what we have to look forward to if we don't awaken, to trying to claw our way to the top of the heap so that we can have what we want and then die and leave it all. If they don't develop themselves, they'll die as they have lived violently. How can the blind develop what they can't see? And this is the big problem. 
You need somebody who's sighted to help the blind to see what they can't see. To properly observe an attitude, you need time-lapse photography and a sincere developer to establish a photo of your time body. See, it's not enough to see little flashes of yourself. You have to see a time body picture, a picture of yourself over a long period of time, sometimes a lifetime, so that you start to see what you have actually become. Not these little glimpses, not these little facets that you have hanging all over or that you have in your photo album of your pictures of yourself. That's not time-lapse photography. Photography is different than pictures, snapshots. This photography that the work talks about is this time-lapse photography where you can have days or weeks or months or years all in one line of photographs so that you begin to see what you're really like. You know you have some of this in your life. You have some work memory now. So you have some of this in your life. You can see what you're like. You know that you're a controller. You know that you're a peacock. You know that you're a foodie. You know that you're an undisciplined comfort seeker. You've seen these things about yourself over time. They've repeated and repeated and repeated, and even you got it. You know, it's like it repeated so many times, even I got it. Even I can see it now. And everybody else already knew it. But now we've looked at it so much that even we can see it now. Yes, it's true. There it is. We still may defend it, automatically defend it. But eventually, in our quiet moments, we look at it and we go, but it's true. That's the way I am. And so, there we are. So basically, vision cures blindness, doesn't it? How do you cure blindness? Well, vision. And when you can't see for yourself, you need a seeing eye dog. You need somebody who can help you until you can see for yourself, until your blindness can be cured. And that's what the work does. That's our job here. Our job, meaning those who are a mouthpiece for the work, a mouthpiece for the system, a mouthpiece for real eye, a mouthpiece for master, then our job is to lead you to the place where you can start to feel this, where you can start to learn Braille, where you can start to feel things, where you can start to read things, where you can start to see things, where you can start to know things. There's more than one way of seeing. You don't have to only have eyes, but your eyes can be opened. Well, who can open the eyes of the blind? Well, we'll see, won't we? If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. This comes from Mark chapter 3, verses 26 and 27. I read that to you because this is our position. We are imprisoned by a strong man. You are that strong man. This false personality, this imaginary I that you think you are, is the strong man, and it has imprisoned you. And unless you can find a way to bind its hands, you will not be able to plunder its house. You will not be able to get your house back unless you can bind the hands of the strong man, unless you can stop him from working in your life. That's what bind the hands of the strong man means. Unless you can stop your false personality from running your life, you have no chance of awakening. You have no chance of freeing yourself from his despotic, tyrannical rule. You will live and die in violence by the sword unless you can free yourself. That's the story. Only then can we begin to perceive we've always been a certain kind of person, judging from the same angle, condemning and not forgiving from this perspective, from this attitude of the strong man. Here's your hint for the day. You are not a strong man. You are the slave of a strong man. This work is to free us from this wrong idea that we have about ourselves, these wrong attitudes and these forms of imagination that we have about ourselves. All these things make up false personality, our real enemy, the real strong man who causes us endless, useless suffering without us knowing it. We're like drunks who say, well, they beat me, but I didn't feel it. I didn't feel anything. And this happened and that happened until I woke up. 
And then you begin to wake up and you start to feel the pain. People wonder why waking up is such a hard thing to do. It's because you got so banged up while you were drunk in the inn, in the tavern, fighting and stealing and doing this and doing that in the tavern, getting drunk on imagination, that when you begin to awaken, it's a very painful process. And the reason it's so painful is because you've been so battered by your drunken stupor for so many years. What you've done to yourself, what has been done to you and all that. So it can be painful. And most people turn back away. They go back to the booze again. Booze meaning imagination. Then we begin to see it was all mechanical, all part of our acquired psychology. And we never knew what we were doing. We've been enslaved by a bully, a tyrant, a strong man. This work is to free us. All these things that make up false personality, that's our problem. It's true. Some cannot be awakened. You'll find people who cannot be awakened in this life. There are only few who can, but you'll run into people who are as dead at 20 as they'll be when they're 10 years in the grave. They're that dead, and they cannot be awakened. And there's nothing you can do about that. They believe in everything they say and regard themselves as conscious. That's what a dead person is. A dead person is someone who believes in everything he says and regards himself as conscious. You see them all the time. They are lords of the world. They believe what they're saying. You know it's a lie. Everybody else knows it's a lie, but they believe what they're saying. And they think they're conscious. I remind you of this so you won't foolishly attempt to awaken them. You will only draw their violence and contempt. They lack magnetic center and are in deep, deep sleep. Maurice Nicole said, people close to the possibility of awakening will be able to hear a little of what the work is saying to them. That is, that they are asleep and that they have to study the causes of their being asleep. And this begins with observing the things the work teaches us to observe in ourselves. Emphasis on in ourselves. So this is what I'm asking you to do. Try to notice when you are speaking from attitude. Impressions from the world come into us and they fall on our attitudes. Ospensky said, to change yourself, your attitudes must change. You've tried to talk to people with strong religious attitudes. Once you touch the attitudes, they cease to be intelligent. Remember this? Talking to someone with strong religious attitudes. And you can talk to them about almost anything in the world, and they're intelligent. Start to talk to them about their strong religious attitudes. You touch that, and instantly, their flexibility and their intelligence is absolutely stopped. They turn into crystal. They're hard. They're immovable. They're unyielding. This is the way it is, and everybody's gone to hell who doesn't believe it. Good. I want you to remember that. Once you touch those attitudes, they cease to be intelligent. We are like that. Your attitudes are exactly the same. Having our sense of I in these attitudes gives us a wrong center of gravity. What's right center of gravity? One that's in real I, not false I. So we're a little way from right center of gravity at the moment. (laughs) Right now we're planted pretty securely in a wrong center of gravity. But this work is about helping us to make this shift. So where is real I? Well, it's between the opposites. You know, that place we never visit, that place we don't know anything about. Real eye is hiding in plain sight between the opposites. But we are on the pendulum, from this opposite to that opposite. And we spend so little time swinging and so quickly swinging by the center between the opposites where real eye is that we never get a glimpse of it. This is your second education. It's to enable you to think in a new way about all things that you've taken for granted mechanically from imitation of other people in early life. This is what this work is about. We are trying to see all of these things that we have taken as the way it is. Well, I'm a Democrat. Well, I'm a Christian. Well, I'm a Catholic. Well, I'm a Jew. Well, I'm this. Well, I'm that. You're none of those things. Those things are all things that have been acquired. You are none of those things. You don't know what you are. So when we say I to these things, we are putting our identity in them. We're putting our sense of self in them. And those are attitudes that we have collected, that we've imitated, and they imprison us. All the impressions that come in life, they fall right on those things and make us jerk and react and do this 
this and do that. They make us inflexible. They make us stupid. They make us think in a certain way. And what this work is about is helping us to learn to think in a new way about all those things so that they no longer control us. Our attitudes connect us with life by invisible threads. If you have no attitude to religion, you're not going to be affected by what anybody says about religion. Can you see that? If you have no attitude toward the rainforest, you're not going to be upset or not upset either way. You are free to have your own thoughts. Now we have attitudes without realizing it. We simply think we're right, and this imprisons us through identification. They're the most amazing thing to me. Because I listen to people, and it's like they never even consider the possibility that the way they're seeing something is not the way it is, that it could be seen some other way. This is amazing to me. Have you ever thought about doubting yourself? Why I'm right? I mean, literally, I've had people say, why, why, oh, I'm right. No, there's no doubt about it. I'm right. This is the way it is. It's like, okay, that's a dead person. In that area, they are dead. And until they can start to doubt, and the only way they're going to doubt is if they see that attitude. If they somehow are directed, and they're blind, so they can't see it, but if somehow they can find someone or something that can show them, that can turn their head, open their eyes, and so they can see that about themselves, they are absolutely dead until that time. And that, my friends, is pitiful. That's just pitiful to me. When I see that, my heart goes out to those people. And I don't know what it's going to take for them, but whatever. That's really not my business. I'm not here for them. I'm here for you. We have attitudes about everything and don't know it. Religion, politics, sex, drinking, society, real estate, you name it. Cars. You have attitudes about cars. You know what's the best car and the worst car. Ford and the Chevy argument. When I was a kid, it was a Ford, a Ford man or a Chevy man. <laughs> it was like, oh my God. It was like, are you a Democrat or a Republican? Are you a, are you a Christian or a Jew? And that was it. Everything was black and white. Everything was like, bam. Now we have a little more, a few more th things thrown into the mix now. Is it American or Japanese? You know, American or foreign now? It's a car. It's like, buy American, don't buy foreign. You know, it's like all that stuff. It's the same, same thing. It's just got a different label on the same attitude. And it's just as binding. We talk from attitude, not understanding. We react blindly when under influence of attitudes while imagining that we're behaving consciously. We imagine we're conscious of all this. We just blurt out these things. You have attitudes about diet. You think you know something about it. You don't know anything about it. You think you know something about politics. You don't know anything about politics. Even if you've been in politics your whole life, you don't know anything about politics. All you know is how to survive. That's the truth. I'm telling you the truth now. Don't be too upset. Here's a clue. When we talk from attitude, we're easily offended and we become violent. Not so when we speak from understanding. Let that be a guide in your observation of yourself. Try to see when you're speaking from attitude. This is your clue. When we're speaking from attitude, we're easily offended, we easily become violent. When we're speaking from understanding, it's not that way at all. Now get to work. Often the practical application of these ideas sounds like it's going to be easy. The ideas sound great. When we actually run into a situation or a person who's being a little more difficult than we'd like, we find it's not as easy as we thought it was going to be. If you've hit a snag with some aspect of this work and its practical application in your everyday life, I invite you to write James at SolidRockVista.com. Sometimes a fresh perspective is all it takes to get us back on the right track.